Hello, everyone, and thank you very much for joining us for this week's NASDAQ Dorsey Wright podcast that is going to be airing the Friday of February 3rd. Uh, my name is Ian Saunders, and we are thrilled this week to be joined by Brennan Ahern, who is with Crane Chair. So, Brennan, I, I know that you've been on some of the media we've had in the past. We've had some webinars. You've been on the podcast. Actually, we, we you sat here in this room, I believe, if yeah. I remember correctly, and joined the podcast uh, there a couple of years ago. But uh, we're thrilled to have you back here. Uh, th thank you for making the time. No, thank you for the opportunity. It's great to reconnect to you. Yeah, absolutely. So, Brennan, I know people probably know who you are, but if you wouldn't mind, just for those that might not, um, just providing a brief kind of background, maybe on yourself, how you kind of got into the, the ETF business, and then and then Crane Shares as well. Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, I had the good fortune of uh, being hired by Barclays Global Investors uh, back in the beginning of 2001 as they were rolling out. Uh, iShares, their suite of uh, exchange traded funds. So, um, was you know a very you know one of the early employees of of, of iShares, and um, obviously you know arguably one of the you know most successful uh, launches in terms of asset management, and uh, certainly then worked for uh, BlackRock for a number of years. Uh, but certainly, I ended up getting introduced to uh, Jonathan Crane, and you know he articulated his vision about how China was migrating its economy to more of a domestic consumption story as opposed to export-driven manufacturing, but also providing more and more access into uh, the Shanghai and Shenzhen, the second largest stock market in the world. And I just thought about it from an indexer's perspective that you know the historical definition of China was Chinese companies listed in Hong Kong. And and when John said, wow, you know, you got the second largest stock market in the world, you're giving more access. I just thought about, well, if if we can make, if we can own those stocks before index providers like MSCI and others own them, like we can front run the largest asset managers in the world. And so I uh, quit my job to help make uh, Jonathan's vision investable uh, 10 years ago. And um, lo and behold, you know, probably like many of your clients, you know, as financial advisors, Ian, you know, it was uh, it was not an overnight success. There were trials and tribulations, but uh, you know, knock on wood, uh, you know, we're up to about twelve billion in, in aggregate client assets. Wow, that's that's awesome. And it's always, I mean, the uh, the kind of startup stories. Always, it's always nice nice to hear that kind of background. Um, but I'm, I'm sure it's certainly a pretty different market environment now for China than it was back then. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's there's always been risks or um, you know around China. You know, ten years ago it was shadow banking or ghost cities, and today it's maybe more geopolitical. But you know, I think I think if you step back, you know, I'm 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 in my late 40s and growing up in the 80s. You know, there's this Asian country. Um, its economy was growing much faster than the U.S. and its companies were buying Rockefeller Center and Pebble Beach, and uh, Michael Crichton wrote a book about how they were going to you know, take over America, and Tom Clancy wrote a book about a surprise attack, and um, you know there was all this geopolitical concern, economic concern, and of course that country was Japan. Um, and a lot of what's around happening with China today, I'm just like, man, I've seen this before. You know, it was it wasn't Japan. You know, it was Japan then. Uh, but but similarly, from a investor's perspective, you know, Japan went from, you know, became almost two thirds of developed market indices, and you know, they 
you know, MSCI created Asia X Japan in 1989. And I kind of went from an indexer's perspective, you see a similar path with China. And so a lot of what we're trying to do is, you know, help investors navigate what's happening there. You know, we're in finance, we're data people. And, you know, this little thing is a mobile surveillance device. And, you know, we get data from Chinese mobile payments and e-commerce companies. You know, we don't need government data. And so we want to provide that perspective to investors and earn their trust. And uh, I always point out, you know, you, you, you might say you don't own China, but you do. Because almost 20% of Apple's revenue comes from China, 25% of Tesla, you know, more than 10% of ExxonMobil. You know, U.S. multinationals have done a great job in China. And that's, that's true for global multinationals. So you have this implied exposure to China, which is why you got to understand what's going on over there. And then, you know, you might want to own via crane shares, you know, some of the local local equivalents because they, they, they're probably doing well over there as well. Right. And, and so given kind of all the, the integration, I guess, with the Chinese economy into that global economy and 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 uh, the various kind of U.S., some of the biggest U.S. companies like you just touched on there as well. Um, I mean, if we're just kind of diving into some of the, the nuts and bolts of what I think a lot of our listeners might be interested in is we saw a lot of underperformance from China over the course of the past year. I mean, it's been it's been a rough 18 months to a couple of year period, kind of on the back of a lot of those those COVID concerns and COVID issues, how they might have handled a little bit differently. But I mean, in, in many of our rankings, Brendan, that we have on on the the Dorsey Right platform, I mean, China fell to some of some of the lower levels that we'd seen on several of the rankings, like the Asset Class Group Scores page. And so, given that you are the kind of the the boots on the ground and no better person to to learn about it than yourself, uh, what why did we see such China underperformance relative to other other areas and broader international and emerging market equities? Yeah, I mean, big picture, you know, stepping back, you know. EM and a lot of investors say EM and China is out of favor that, you know, you know, since the G global financial crisis, this, you know, incredible underperformance. And, and so, you know, if I'm an advisor or I'm a, I'm a trustee or I'm a board member, part of an investment committee, I mean, holy cow, 56, you know, it's 14 years. We're talking about 56 quarterly meetings or calls explaining why we hold something that consistently underperforms and uh, is a drag, right? The more we've diversified, the worse we've done because U.S. equities have been the only game in town. But I would I would argue, one, that if we looked at MSCI Emerging Markets, MSCI China, 10 years ago, those two benchmarks were 50% financials and energy, and they were basically value proxies. And we went through a decade of growth investing decadence that those benchmarks were very poor transmission vehicles because a growth sector like tech made up 11% of EM. In China, it was 2%. MSCI China 10 years ago, it was 2% China. Wow. So, so, so this fallacy of like, oh, like, you know, EM or China, you know, you can't get performance. Those those tech parts of those benchmarks ran circles around the S&P 500. But that's kind of what we at Cranchers want to give you, right? You know, that, you know, that's give you that growth exposure. And, you know, I can, if you email us at info at Cranchers, I can send you the data that proves this thesis out, right? In the short run, I think there's really been three issues have really weighed 
not just on the markets, but on China's economy, on consumer confidence in China, but also foreign investor sentiment. And, and those three issues are zero COVID, real estate, and geopolitical, right? US-China relations. And, and part of why these issues over the last two years really weighed was that as foreigners, the party Congress in China, you know, you saw, okay, Xi got his third term, he put his buddies in the upper echelon of the government. But due to promotions, mandatory retirements in the Chinese government, every government official in China had to make sure that they have a job for the next five-year political cycle. So all issues got put on the back burner. And I think huge amounts of stress built up on these issues. And, and now that the party Congress is over in October, it's just like a 180. That now you have this, you know, we call it a policy pivot. And, you know, zero COVID, gone. Real estate, they're backing these distressed property developers. I and mean, the government's literally saying we're backing them. Uh, they want to get property prices up. Now, part of that is for economic reasons, that as the global economy slows, demand for exports from China will slow. So what are they going to do to support the economy? Well, it's not going to be the post-global financial crisis infrastructure boom, right? It, you know, debt-driven, bridges-to-nowhere ghost cities. It has to be domestic consumption. And zero COVID really weighed on the consumer because you know, if you're afraid you might get locked in your apartment, you hoard cash, you don't spend it. Mm -hmm. So some of this going away is, is due for economic reasons. And then on US-China, you had Biden and Xi meet for three hours at the G20 in, in Bali, at the APEC conference in uh, Bangkok, Camilla Harris and other government met with Xi. Uh, Secretary of State of Blinken is on his way to China. Janet Yellen will visit China. And I think part of that is China's realized that its economy is so geared to the West, it cannot afford to be ostracized or excluded like Russia. And I think some of that is also true. The West does need China. That, you know, you know, you know, we, you know, you know, we need these things that are made in China. Um <laughs> But it also the profits that come from American and you know companies operating in China. So so hopefully you know some of this is just people getting on airplanes, picking up phones, or doing Zooms uh, because we need them as much as they need us. And uh, there's some green shoots there um, um, uh, from the political side. So, mm -hmm. so again, part of what I think you know your X's the you know Dorsey Wright X's and O's are picking up on is you know. The alleviation of these issues on on China markets, right? And and I think we, I mean, we've certainly seen some of that. As I mentioned, like with the the group scores page that I touched on, we saw China fall to some of the lowest ratings on that group scores, the average score perspective that we'd seen down kind of south of a one score. Score goes from zero to six, um, but recently crossed back above that three threshold, which is that kind of line of demarcation that we look at to identify the stronger areas. You know, the higher the better, but when you're above three in the top half of those scoring ranges. It's generally a pretty good sign. And just in the past couple of weeks, it moved back above that 3.0 scoring threshold for the first time since the first quarter of 2021. So, I mean, I, I think that that's, we're definitely seeing 
some of that, some of what you just talked about play out from a relative strength perspective too. Um, taking the first first part of what you just touched on there though, um, I, I think the term reopening has been thrown around quite a bit and probably has a few different kind of uh kind of connotations with 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 different individuals. So with reopening, I mean what you said zero COVID is just kind of out the window. What does that look like right now? And I know there's talking about with more people being able to travel around, air traffic's picking up. Um, but what is that? Are they completely open now or, or what does that kind of look like and what is it going to look like down the road, I guess? Yeah, I mean, for domestic travel in China, they've opened things up and, you know, you probably, you know, they had their big holiday, their Lunar New Year and, you know, just a gazillion flights. And so on the international, the outbound side, it's, it's still slowly getting there. But I think over the next several weeks, you'll see, I mean, um, you know, I think, I think, you know, tourists from Asia are going to be all over, you know, if it's here in New York or, you know, down in Washington near you and, uh, you know, that, you know, after two years of being locked up, you know, people are ready to get out and about. And you know, what, what gets us really excited as investors and it's self-serving and highly biased is, you know, you're really, you know, we think the e-commerce companies are the transmission engines for domestic consumption in China and certainly, online travel companies like trip.com you know these are companies that we hold within kweb and i just believe that you know as the global economy slows a little bit manufacturing demand in china will slow the trade data is showing that and so there has to be a lot of emphasis on domestic consumption and uh recently you know president xi did a big speech economic speech and actually highlighted how many times he said domestic consumption that that you know i mean he just kept saying it over and over like because that's where they have to focus and so there's a lot they can do to support the local economy by raising domestic consumption and i just feel like you know a lot of a lot of you know it's very interesting ian you know most of my conversations over the last several months have been with hedge funds and and hedge funds are traders right they don't marry their positions like you know they change they're chameleons and you know you you contrast that with a lot of investors you know the investment committee needs to meet or we got to talk to the trustees or the board and you know, think about back in october a big us pension plan said we're going to ch- cut our china position in half i mean can you imagine what their q1 investment committee meeting is going to be like that's I mean, rough, rough time to be cutting. That's for I sure. mean, like, hey, how did that call go? I mean, so so, but think about how do they reverse that? Does that happen? You know, that you know, this underweight, you know, it comes off. I think slow. It's it's mm-hmm. hard. It's very hard to change for a lot of investors because of the committee nature, and that's why you know my view is like the pain trade is higher. Right. Um, right. Now, 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 obviously, your Dorsey practitioners, you know, they're going to use, you know, you know, the methodology. Right. And, you know, it's reassuring to hear that a lot of our fundamental beliefs are kind of showing up in, in the charts. Right. And, and I mean, that's one of the what we feel is one of the beauties of the kind of technical analysis as a whole yeah. or certainly point figure charting is that, I mean, it's completely objective. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, it doesn't take a political stance. It doesn't factor in it. it 
everything kind of factors into the price, right? And so, I mean, we're seeing that play out, certainly from a near-term perspective, um, just given some of the volatility, we do need like a little bit more consistency for some of the relative strength relationships, but that near-term strength is certainly kind of picking up, um, it, especially when looking, I know you mentioned like trip.com and looking at some of these individual stocks, I mean, their technical pictures look pretty solid and we're seeing some pretty, pretty uh, strong pictures from uh, some funds like, like yours as well. Um, in taking a look at some of the individual stocks, though, I know that we've, I mean, a variety of different ways that you can kind of hit on different different stock pictures. One of the ways that we look at it here at Dorsey Red is through participation readings. Um, so looking at like the percentage of stocks participating in an upwards movement. So we have an indicator we track in the Shanghai bullish percent, looking at the percentage of stocks in the, the Shanghai exchange that are trading on a buy signal on their default point and figure charts in our system. Um, and we recently actually, with movement yesterday, saw that indicator prints a second consecutive kind of higher high up at a chart level of 42%. Um, so we that indicator got up to 44% back in June of this year, um, fell back lower by the beginning of October and then turned right back around and just swinging higher. Um, right around the kind of mid 40s is really the highest level it's been at for a couple of years. We're seeing it reach 44, reach 46 in September of 2021. Um, but it's definitely kind of getting back up towards mm -hmm. peaks. Do you think that maybe some of these stocks have been on too much of a run or how far do you think that some of these can go? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, we, you know, kind of, um, you know, if you think about, you know, the K-Web companies are, uh, you know, there's really two Chinas. There's, you know, the historical definition of China has been Hong Kong and US ADRs. So like K-Web is more, what do foreign investors think about China? And we can contrast that with KBA because KBA is Shanghai and Shenzhen stocks, 95% owned by investors in China. So it's more reflective of, why, you know, what do the Chinese think about China? And in 2021, you know, K-Web did not have a good year, unfortunately. I say that as a shareholder. Um, uh, but I was, uh, and, and that was because of all these, these issues we kind of spoke about, you know, it weighed on the space. Uh, but in China, Chinese investors didn't really care about that stuff. And so KBA actually went up in 2021. And that's why, we kind of say like KBA and KWeb, even though they both have China in the name, because the end investors are so different, they're doing two different things. And I kind of view KWeb as like a coiled spring where it's obviously it's had a big move already. But I kind of say, you know, you go around and ask people like, hey, are you buying Chinese stocks? Like, um, I don't think so. Pain trades higher. A actively managed funds particularly U.S. funds, are highly underweight China. And that's despite mm -hmm. the rally. At the same time, in China, as zero COVID goes away and they address real estate issues, you, you know, the belief is that, that that economic rebound is, you know, animal spirits will lead to the mainland markets going up. And it's funny, yeah, I was looking at charts of Shanghai, Shenzhen, uh, the composites, kind of KBA, and it looks it looks pretty darn compelling. The problem is you put China on it, people are like, whoa. And, that, and that's where economically, you know, you, know, you know, if you think about China has very low inflation, under 2%. The central bank is easing. Um, interest rates are literally dropping in China. They're they're quantitatively easing. They're putting you know you know money supply is growing, and the valuation situation is is reasonable. Now, if we think about other investment opportunities, 
you know, that that, you know, is our interest rates going up or down? What's inflation doing? What what's the valuations on a historical basis? You know, I, I you know, I've got a little bit of a bias um, you know, just because I worked at Solomon Brothers Asset Management and, and we had the, oh. this ex-Fed Fed official was a portfolio manager. And the only thing he looked at was money supply. Look at money supply in Europe, in the U.S., in Japan. It's so. So anyway, you know, there's a lot of China's got a few things going for it. But, you know, the great thing, again, Ian, is like, you know, what I, you know, you know, what's great is like, you know, the narrative or the media, like, just forget it. Right. You know, it's let, let the charts tell you what's happening. And the positive thing, it it, it, re, it does reaffirm a lot of what we see from an economic perspective, mm-hmm. um, as well as some of the fundamentals, as well as some of these issues that have really weighed on foreign investor sentiment. Right. And so with, I mean, trying to, I mean, seeing their kind of rebound coming back into play there, seeing that area pick up strength. I mean, as as you mentioned, China's, I mean, quite a large portion of most broader international, certainly broader emerging market representatives now. We've seen some other emerging market areas that have held up relatively well, some areas in, in Latin America, like Mexico. I mean, but then also some, some Asian areas that have kind of picked up the pace a little bit more recently too. Do you think that the China trade is, is, really kind of having a catalyst or is really kind of taking effect in some of those yet because it did seem for a little while given the under during the underperformance that it was weighing down a little bit more i guess we would expect to see the opposite take effect now right yeah i mean i think you know we look we spend a lot of time looking at you know uh, how are how are active funds you know relative to their benchmarks or what are they over underweight you know em global mandates asia japan and and it is interesting they've they've been very underweight china so they've been overweight india and and we kind of see that maybe there's a little bit of a rotation that you know this you know this part of the pain trade is higher thesis is you know is as China continues to outperform it kind of forces managers back into these names. I do think the reopening of China has a, a, a benefit for commodities. That yes, this this reopening of China, it's not going to be the debt-driven infrastructure boom, which was a huge for commodity plays in the late '90s, uh, but certainly demand for things like oil um, is going to be very strong, and that's good for places like Colombia, right? It's good for Saudi Arabia. It's good for so so there is a commodity element that is you know it's going to be good for a lot. You know you know obviously. Uh, uh, Penamex, right? The the Mexican oil company, right? That that there are these, the, there is this commodity play within EM that you know I think will will you know there'll be beneficiaries, right? You know a lot of this these holidays that the Chinese just took it was to Indonesia, you know. Um, so so there's there's an effect, right? That that will take place, and I think it just in general, I just think um, you know I, I you know. Um, I just find it interesting, you know, I'm watching like financial TV, like, you know, everything's about Tesla and Apple and <laughs> Google. And I, I'm just like, man, I, you know, what worked in the past 10 years, you know, are you positioned if it doesn't work for the next 10? And, yeah. you know, you know, we'll find, you know, time will tell, you know, I'm, and so I'm not, I'm not, you know, I, I don't even pretend to think I can predict the future, but <laughs> you know, the market tends to do what's least anticipated. And, you know, certainly, you know, the dollar, the dollar is a big thing to watch, you know, as it declines, you know, maybe non-US equities goes on a nice run here. 
Yeah. And I mean, that's what across many of our rankings, broader asset class rankings that we have on the system, international has kind of risen to the top of, of most of those rankings. And I mean, the China trade recently is certain certainly provided some some tailwinds to kind of continue to push that area higher. Every time it seems like, oh, some of these areas are getting a little bit overbought, a little bit pullback, and then they just kind of continue to stair step higher. Um, and so that that's certainly been the case in, in many areas that we've seen on the system. So kind of it's nice to hear that the fundamental side of it's kind of playing in with the technical side too, kind of coming together to, as, as Tom Dorsey would say, play the piano with both hands, right? One hundred percent. Well, Brent, I guess, and kind of, and what's what's one area or one kind of indicator or thing that, or chart or reading or something that, that listeners can kind of look toward in terms of continuing to see some of this move higher, maybe not on the technical side, uh, but in in on more of the, the fundamental or what are some numbers that you've been following or something that we can kind of continue to track here? Well, I think, you know, we're headed into the Q4 earnings season for a lot of the companies within KWeb. And I think, I think the key, the market in, in February will be very focused on their forecast that you know that wall street economists actually believe retail sales will be negative for q1 in china and i think some of the things we're seeing from the chinese new year the travel the spending you know what if that's positive so i think investors the potentially next real catalyst will be you know the q1 q2 forecasts could give us that next leg higher against this backdrop of underinvestment, right? That pain trade just getting harder. The one thing I always point out to people, um, you know, just one little nugget of us staring at, at China markets for 10 years is um, I always watch CNH. So CNH is uh, China's currency during US trading hours. And if you think about it, it's very easy to move a stock. You know, um, I can, you know, I can push. Apple down for a nanosecond by you know selling right, um, but currencies are much harder to move. And CNH is a great barometer of headline risk. Um, and so I always say to people like you know before you panic or you see something in the news, check out CNH. And and I think part of what I found kind of interesting, kind of on, on your point, you know, and, you know the, these dips being bought. Is is when you get these pullbacks in China, CNH is staying very stable. It's actually appreciated really strongly versus the dollar. It's kind of fascinating, and then that's why these dips. Like I'm kind of like, okay, you know, this dip can be bought because of what CNH is telling us. That if some of this headline that creates the dip, CNH is saying it's not something I should lose sleep over, mm. and then and then these dips get bought and and. It's kind of a, you know, it's kind of an interesting little nugget that I, you know, I just kind of keep up on my screen is watching CNH and, um, you know, it's something that, you know, for, for the folks, you know, the Dorsey practitioners, it's something kind of interesting to follow. Yeah, absolutely. That's certainly, I mean, we had the, the um, kind of point figure chart of that, that relationship with the U S dollar that people should certainly, I'm certainly going to add it to my chart list. So something I'll take a look at there, there each morning and keep up to date with, uh, well, Brennan, I think that kind of runs through most of the questions that we were looking to touch on here. Um, and again, I know you you covered a few different ways that you can kind of access information via thecraneshares.com. I know you're also the author of China Last Night, right? Yeah, yeah. I write a daily research blog and it's just like it's it's quick, it's easy. Um, you know, should you read it every day? Probably not. Uh, but you know, when I read it every day, so that's well, <laughs> I'm blushing, I'm blushing. My mom doesn't even read it every day. Uh <laughs> But you know, you know, 
there's going to be a day where you're going to see something, a headline, and if it's in your inbox, you just open it up and it gives us the, you know, the venue to kind of respond to some of this stuff. And uh, um, again, you know, so chinalastnight.com, it's a free research blog. Um, and then certainly on craneshares.com, you know, we produce a lot of work and we're always available. I mean, I think, you know, like, like yourself, Ian, you know, customer service is job one and you know, we're on planes, trains and automobiles and, uh, you know, always available just via info at craneshares.com. That's great. And for those that are subscribers to, the, to our research platform as well, we do have a model that we partner with Craneshares on looking at identifying focused relative strength in, in China, kind of an offense defense type of model that's going to move into areas uh, or move into the funds where we see relative strength pick up the pace. We've seen that model move back into a little bit more offensive posture here recently. And Certainly will be something that we'll be continuing to monitor here yeah. over the uh, the weeks and months to come. But and, any more info on that definitely can reach out to us or or Crane Shares on and that then, too. Yeah, I think Ian, like you know, the model the model said you know you should be you know you know for two years almost you know the model was basically under you know significantly underweight equity exposure and you know for us I mean that was kind of a bitter pill but but you know, again, like it, it worked. I mean, and then to see it, you know, seeing the offense come back on the field is, was been uh, <laughs> definitely reassuring. Yes. Yes. And it'll be good to see that offense continue to come back on the field. Hopefully as we see some of these other indicators and, and indexes continue to climb. Um, well, Brendan, it was great to have you on here. Thank you. Thank you for joining us here again. And uh, for, for those that are listening, thank you for tuning in. Please do reach out to Brendan there with Crane Shares. If you have any other questions on that front, and we look forward to having you back next week. Thank you again, Ian.